It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ambro Hearn, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you. Amber, this is a very exciting podcast for me personally, and I know our audience will be thinking much of the same as well. But for those who have never heard of L. Ambro Hearn, in 60 seconds or less, what is your elevator pitch? <laughs> oh, give me my introduction. <laughs> well, I don't know. My claim to fame is really just that I've been on a carnivore diet for a long time and started advocating for it early. So it's been 12 years now, which is half of my low-carb life of 24 years, which is half of my living on this earth life of 48 years. So I'm kind of a veteran and I've learned a lot in that time. And it's just something that I'm really now comfortable talking about, although it was a little bit weird and uncomfortable at first. I think that's a really great synopsis. And to give people an idea that a little bit sort of further apart on the spectrum of what we're talking about, a carnivore diet in what we're discussing today, Amber, would you agree, is largely around the majority of your diet coming from animal-based products? Yes. So a carnivore diet is, of course, the first thing that might come to mind is what a carnivore eats, but what a carnivore eats in the wild could be even just you know, half of their food coming from animal sources. But a carnivore diet as a protocol for health would be all or, or almost all of your diet coming from animal sourced foods. So notoriously, I drink coffee. And so that's obviously not an animal sourced food, but none of my calories come from plants. And I don't eat spices regularly either. Now, this is really interesting, Amber. Because your background, you've got you're a very smart and educated person. Degrees in Russian, uh, computer science, uh, computer computer linguistics, and now you are an independent writer and researcher on on nutrition, health, and and evolution. Yeah, I like to take the scenic route. I guess <laughs> it's it's it seems interesting that. A lot of people that in this community, Amber, that have ended up where they are now come from backgrounds or education where they've been forced to understand the root cause of how things work. Um, people like Ivor Cummins comes to mind and the way that he's gone about understanding how everything works. Me, on the other hand, I came from 
virtually no education. I didn't even finish school or, or go to go to university, but I've always wanted to understand how things work so that I can appreciate them more. Is that something that's pretty close to your heart? Well, yes and no. And I want to say education, I do have degrees and I love school, but not everything went smoothly for me in that way either. I didn't ever finish high school, for example, <laughs> myself, and but things came together in other ways for me later. Uh, as to finding the root cause, I'm always... I'm always interested in a kind of common cause search because I think that that kind of explanation can be more useful in certain areas than say physics, where which is really designed for or really fits well into the kind of uh, experimental science. But if you have instead a whole lot of clues that have resulted in some state of the earth or of a body or, or of some history, and, and then trying to figure out what led to that, then a common cause kind of inquiry is, is often the best way to do it. But I don't claim to know what the root cause of many things are. The reason that, I mean, it's it, it drives me with endless curiosity to try to find out what what has happened to me, but what what keeps me here is not so much an idea of what I what I believe has happened, but uh, just the results for themselves. And just for our audience, Amber, for the people that haven't come across you before, in terms of major chronic health issues in your and in in, in, over the course of your life, are you able to share with our audience what they were? Absolutely. So I've always struggled with my weight, and I know that many people have. And the low-carb diet was the first time that I really had any kind of success with that. And the carnivore diet also gave me more success with that than the low-carb diet did. But besides all that, the reason that I stick to what some people might find to be a very regimented, restricted diet is because of my psychological, psychiatric health. So I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when I was 20, and I was on antidepressants for a very long time, many years, and it wasn't really helping. So it became re-diagnosed as treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. And then I started having other symptoms that led to a re-diagnosis of bipolar disorder of type 2, which means instead of the traditional swing between manic episodes and depressive episodes, I would only go so far on the manic side as what they call hypomania. So basically little manias, but big enough to, to make a differential diagnosis and for, for my healthcare to take a different turn. But it turned out that the drugs that I was then given to try to address it with, from this point of view of this new diagnosis weren't helpful to me either. And I was really at a, a terrible point of despair. My health was getting worse. The disease was progressing. My life was in shambles. And that's when I came across the carnivore diet, which was called the zero carb diet at the time. And I had no expectation that it would have any kind of effect on my psychiatric health. So let's be clear about that. It was just about the weight loss again. Uh, super a superficial thing but something that we all care about of course and and i've i found 
totally by accident, the most wonderful accident, <laughs> except for maybe some of my children. <laughs> but the, this, the, one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me is that the carnivore diet put my bipolar disorder into remission. And it's been there for, I've been off drugs for 12 years. Okay. So I just want to repeat that. You have put into full remission your bipolar for 12 years now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I still have moods. <laughs> In fact, I, I'm probably better understanding my moods now than I were before because they're not all consuming. Um, but, I, but I have not needed any medical or therapeutic intervention for all this time. It's, it's wonderful. Okay. So this is, is, this is extraordinary. I mean, and particularly with the, the treatment resistant version. So all of the medical fraternity has basically said, Amber, we, we had nothing else for you. And you've gone down this pathway totally accidentally, really, and stumbled across something that's put that into full, full remission. Mm. And what about the depression and the depressive disorder? How has that been? So, yeah, I don't have depressive episodes anymore. <laughs> I get sad. Um, I've gone through a lot of stress. So it's been pretty well stress tested, you might say. Uh, I've had some really, uh, a lot of upheaval in my life since that 12 years ago. But it's never, it's never been to the point where I couldn't cope or I was lost in depression or where I was, you know, um, not able to cope with my own variation in moods. Wow. And just, I'm really curious to know what, what were your symptoms of bipolar? Like, cause you can Google this and they, they can give you a list of everything, but I really want to hear from the horse's mouth, I suppose what they are. Yeah, sure. So depression, the one side of it would be, I had a lot of lack of motivation, uh, periods of despair periods of suicidality where I just didn't feel like there was anything that could possibly make my life worth living. And, um, you know, just unable to get myself out of the rut, despite um, having read a lot about cognitive therapy and, and been in training for cognitive and behavioral therapy. I mean, I could see sometimes the irrationality of my thoughts, but that didn't make them less compelling, which is kind of interesting. And then with the bipolar part, uh, what, what first started happening with the hypomanias, um, I didn't recognize them at first because what they felt like to me was a relief of depression. So I, I would feel just, uh, you know, at the most basic level, feel really good. Um, that could be more like euphoria or um, extra excitement. In, in true mania, this develops into something like uh, so much excitement that you stop sleeping or um, so much confidence in the greatness of your own ideas that it turns into delusions of grandeur or into big sprees of spending money or taking risks that in retrospect later, you realize we're not really the great idea that they that you thought they were. But what I what I would have is just sort of the edge leading up to that, where I would get edgy, I would get pumped. It would be like 
they like having too much caffeine in some ways, like you're talking really fast, all these ideas are coming. I'm really excited. I think that my ideas are great. And maybe some of them were <laughs> in some ways it, it's a bit of a holy grail for people, I think, to get to just that right level of hypomania. <laughs> um, but then, so so that was the, the initial presentation of it. But over time, I said that the disease was starting to progress. And what I mean by that is, for one thing, there's a kind, there begins to be a kind of separation between the physical and the emotional, say, cycles of up and down. So instead of them coming together at the same time where you're excited and you're happy, you might have that excited energy in your body, but not be happy. And so that could come out as irritation or um, anxiety, which was something very unusual for me. I, I think I was an exceptionally calm and laid back person for most of my life. So that was, that was hard to deal with. And then the cycles were starting to get faster. So uh, some people have an idea that bipolar disorder is something that kindles and begins to build and get faster and progress. It's a progressive disease in that way. And so by the time, by the time I found the carnivore diet, I was having rapid cycling. So, so I would, could have a variety of moods throughout the course of a single day. Wow. And I, people listening to this might, might incorrectly assume that you had a really troubled upbringing or, you know, some suffered a major trauma. And I'm just curious to know, I don't know anything of your, your upbringing, but I'm curious to know what was your upbringing like? I, I was a very happy child. I, I mean, you know, I didn't have everything perfect. Uh, my, my family was pretty poor, so we didn't have a lot in that way, but we, it was a loving family with siblings. My parents divorced and that was difficult, but I wouldn't say that it was extraordinarily traumatizing. I, what, I don't what age that was I that? Anything. Uh, I guess I was 11 or 12. Okay, so it's still a significant impact on someone's life, but but yes. sorry, you can continue there. Yes, no, I mean, I think that that's something a lot of people go through these days, and I didn't feel at the time at least, I mean, who knows <laughs> but from from my own perspective, recalling the memory of it, it was it was not so upsetting that I felt like it, my life turned over or something. Something else that I found interesting with regards to your background, your your family chose to live on a vegetarian-focused diet for the majority of your youth and, and teen years. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So my mother was a vegetarian from young adulthood for compassionate ethical reasons. And uh, I think my father was easygoing about it. He didn't stay vegetarian after the, they split up, but he wasn't, you know, a, he certainly wasn't the kind of meat eater I am today, but uh, but there were also you know financial considerations. A vegetarian diet is a lot uh, or can be a lot less expensive to live off grains and legumes, and we certainly did that. Well, yeah, pay now or pay later is the approach I've taken to that. Um, but I, I totally appreciate that. You also had a crack at going vegan for a period there. 
Yes. So the first time that I had a, a really distressing weight gain was when I first went to university. And I had, I had been living on my own for a couple of years before that and wasn't eating vegetarian. I wasn't overweight either. But when that started to happen, I thought that, you know, I just probably didn't think about it too, too deeply. I believed what I had been told about nutrition. I thought that vegetarianism was probably the healthiest way to eat. And so I thought I should just return to that and I knew how to do it well. And so, so I did that and started exercising more and that didn't solve the problem at all. <laughs> so then I thought uh, veganism was the next kind of logical step after that. If this isn't enough, then take it further. And so, yeah, I did try that. And I, I don't know how long I would have gone on with that, except that it happened to coincide with a, a, an exchange program that I did through Dahazi University, where I went to study a semester of Russian in Russia in St. Petersburg. And I was staying with some people and not only was it very difficult to find vegetarian food, like I think I might've had to subsist mostly on dry pasta or something, but well, not dry. I mean, I would have cooked it, but not only that, but I was often also a guest and, and I just thought, you know, it's, it's not worth it to, not have this experience to put my hosts in discomfort. Um, I can have this experience. And then when I get home, I'll return to my vegan diet and it won't be the end of the world to have done this. But it, it turned out that when I got home for whatever reason, I realized I had lost quite a bit of weight. And so even though there may be many different reasons for that, besides having added meat, it, it made me realize that, it, at, at the very least, avoiding meat was not the salute. It wasn't necessary. So it, it opened my mind to look for other solutions. My fiance is Russian, as I mentioned off the air, Amber. And when she first came to Australia seven years ago and learned that there was people that only ate plants, she was rather astounded and even sort of laughed that if she was, if they were back in Russia, they would probably starve to death. And I'm hoping you had an opportunity to, to try things like meat jelly, uh, which have you had that cooked for you previously? No, but if what you mean by it is like a, a kind of congealed bone broth with bits in it, I have, I have. That's had what that it is. Yeah. Own. Yeah. It's really good. It is really good. I think it must be called something else. You would have, you would have heard what it was called in Russian, but, and, and just while we're on the subject that, what does a typical day of eating look like for you these days? It's such a, a funny question because over the 12 years, it's really, there have been some really pretty different days. <laughs> but when I, when I started, I was eating a lot of steaks and, uh, but it wasn't only beef. So I would eat a lot of pork chops and chicken thighs and eggs and ground beef and, uh, beef ribs and, um, I did eat cheese then. I eat it a little less now. Um, Why is that, do you think? 
why do I eat less now? I've gone in and out of <laughs> dairy eating and I don't have any kind of particular intolerance to dairy, but I do find that certain dairy foods for me, sour cream and yogurt type foods, I seem to have uh, an almost addictive like reaction to them. I can remember the first time that I thought I was going to start eating yogurt after I started a carnivore diet. And I thought I'll buy one container of yogurt and I'll have just a couple spoons every day just to uh, help with my gut biome. I don't know exactly what I was thinking, <laughs> but I remember the first day I had two spoons and the second day I just ate the rest of the container. It was just <laughs> totally owned. <laughs> this sounds like a very familiar scenario, certainly over my neck of the woods. And I, when I when I introduce uh, dairy, Amber, it seems to stall weight loss really quickly. And when I cut it out, it just falls off me. Mm-hmm. To give people well, an idea. The- I have the former, the the stalling weight loss. I don't necessarily lose weight rapidly when I remove it, but it definitely will stall or even cause gains for me if I eat too much dairy. Have you experimented with the lion diet protocol side of things at all for any period of time? Um, I think you must be referring to Michaela Peterson's diet. I don't actually know. Beef and water. Just beef and water, I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, not um, not purposefully exactly. So that would involve for me cutting out coffee, which is something that I didn't cut out originally when I first started, only because it seemed with the group of people that I was introduced to this diet with, it was deemed um, a positive to not drink coffee, but not necessary. And because I liked coffee, I just didn't stop it. But then subsequently, I thought, you know, just to keep myself honest here, if I have had all these great effects from removing all these plants from my diet, I had better find out if coffee is holding me back from feeling even better. And so I did that multiple times. The longest time was for three months and I never found any particular benefit to that. So, so I decided that it wasn't something I needed to do. Yeah, I'm much the same. The I had a period earlier this year, uh, 2021, for anyone watching, I had three weeks off caffeine and I have done, I think, a month last year. I spent the first two weeks in the most horrendous <laughs> withdrawal. <laughs> I had uh, migraine headaches, which I, ne- I never get headaches at all uh, for the mm-hmm. first four days. I had the most extraordinary muscle soreness, Amber, all all through my body. And my kidneys were on fire for about a week and a half. This That's I felt terrible. like Yeah. I was drinking, admittedly, I was I am a man of extremes, but I was drinking the equivalent of ten espresso uh, cups per day. Um which people might be going, That's a lot of coffee. And and it was just one of those Italian, you know, stovetop um oh, you know bruiseworth. But it's a lot of caffeine and my body was just going, thank you for, for the detox. And I was the same. I sort of, I, One thing I noticed, um, I didn't get any gut disruption. I know that if I drink too much caffeine, it will make me feel a little bit queasy at times. And my energy levels were very stable, super stable. They're still pretty good now. But for me, it was like I've given up drinking, gambling, drugs, philandering, 
like limiting beliefs, negative self-talk, and I wouldn't mind a coffee every once in a while. <laughs> so you so you are now drinking it again, at least to some degree? Yeah, yeah. I'm drinking drinking less of it. I seem I seem to build up uh negative credits and if I have time away from it, uh, then it sort of resets and I can hammer back into it again. So one tip for that. One of the things that I discovered after numerous bouts of quitting coffee was that the amino acid L-tyrosine can really put a dent in the withdrawal symptoms. The last couple of times that I have experimented with quitting coffee, I used that. L-tyrosine? Yep. T-Y-R-O. T-Y-R-O-S-I-N-E, is it? That's it. L. And why? Do you know why that works? Um, it is. It has been used to help. Uh, it's a precursor for neurotransmitters that deal with stress, and it's, it's believed to help uh, provide more dopamine. So caffeine acts on adenosine receptors and dopamine it increases dopamine receptors. And so if you suddenly take that away, then your dopamine can get all used up. <laughs> and so the tyrosine can help keep that supply going. That's that's really good advice for anyone out there as well that want to try knocking on the head. And I'd encourage people to do it as well. And it just showed me how addicted to it I was. But it's like the pain was so great that my uh, I took some – Oxycontin, uh, which I broke into quarters. It was some leftover medication from uh, some surgery that had taken place with my fiance a couple of years ago, just sitting in the cupboard, you know. And and I, because I never take pain relief, but I needed that to help me just get through the day. I couldn't couldn't function. I wasn't able to be productive in really any way, shape, or form for the first week and a half. It was really brutal. Um, I incidentally went. Full zero carb, and I and I do have periods, Amber, where I, you know, my 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 weakness, I suppose, is to relapse on sugar, and it's usually ice cream or chocolate, milk chocolate are the two things that sort of get me, and I I wonder if there was a carb flu combo that kind of latched onto that as well at that time. I'm not sure what your thoughts on that Sounds might be. Sounds like a double double whammy. Yeah. And to, just to give people an idea, like without going through your menu for the for the week, as a percentage of your diet, what it, what percentage is plants? I mean, I drink coffee <laughs> every day. Um, other than that, I would I almost I I don't eat plants almost ever. I'll eat a dill pickle now and then. When I eat sashimi, I'll I will have like the wasabi that's with it and maybe a little bit of whatever little bit of daikon is next yeah. to it, but not, not all of it. Um, and I have had dark chocolate from time to time. The other thing that I have reintroduced that wasn't there for the first five years is alcohol. Um, not that I'm necessarily recommending alcohol, but I found I, I, you know, when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the psychiatrist who diagnosed me said, interestingly enough, he said, you'll be fine as long as you don't eat sugar don't, and don't drink alcohol and don't get pregnant again. 
Um, <laughs> so I've done the last two of those. Uh, but the thing that, about alcohol, and I don't know how mainstream of an idea this was or where he got it, but he said that that drinking alcohol would put me back in in a from a point of view of the bipolar disorder. And so I strictly avoided it for the first five years of my carnivore diet and, and before that, because whenever I was diagnosed. And then I tentatively tried it, I guess the summer of 2014, and it seemed to be fine. And so I, I continued to enjoy that. I guess I was looking for advice, I don't know. And I would even say that at a certain point, I. I started to go a little bit overboard with that and then calmed back down again. But so, I mean, alcohol is derived from plants and I, I drink whiskey and wine. And so that's another source of plant derived foods. Yeah. Look, I think it's easy to be in this little bubble that we're in with this community that we're surrounded by Amber of uh, how restrictive we are. If you compared what you're doing and <laughs> what I'm doing to mainstream diets, people would think that that we're insane, and some do, but that they are missing out That's because right. there, there's a reason why that why we do this. And having gone through my own health journey, not having to go through anything near what you went through, but I have I have noticed and discovered wonderful, wonderful mental health benefits that have changed the course of my life, allowed me to be more productive in the last three years that I've been doing this than I have in the previous 37 and a bit and attained physical prowess, uh, physical change, healing an autoimmune GERD disorder that I had for 17 years and replenish my body with key nutrition that it was chronically depleted in. And this, this for me is has been an absolute no-brainer, and I will continue to eat like this until such time as I can figure out something else better. And I'm, always, I'm a bit like you. I'm trying to always optimize how I feel. And, you know, when we, you and I spoke originally to, to organize this interview, I spoke about the interview I did with Dr. Chris Palmer, which I'll link through in the show notes below, who is an associate professor of uh, psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who's been treating bipolar and schizophrenia disorders with a full one-third remission. And this study has been going for 10-plus years. Another one-third going into significant reduction and another one-third with no noticeable change. And that's only using the ketogenic protocol that they used for epilepsy in children. So I'm so excited about what could happen when they start experimenting with a carnivore diet. And my question for you, Amber, is – is there any studies that are taking place or about to take place that are going to focus on this particular way, this protocol? Not that I know of, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. I think that there's a lot of excitement in the carnivore world, in, and that includes researchers. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were some things coming out. It's interesting because, of course, a carnivore diet is a ketogenic diet, and it's not as as ketogenic, let's say, as a medical keto diet that you would use for epilepsy. I was uh, interested in those figures you just gave. I hadn't heard them before, but they almost they almost perfectly echo what's found in epilepsy. Actually, the third really thing. Um, so that's that's really interesting. I mean, wow. psychiatric disorders really are neurological disorders. We like to think about them as a 
a problem with psychology and and that's not <laughs> that's not necessarily true the brain is a physical thing so but the so carnivore diets are a subset of ketogenic diets they're less ketogenic but that doesn't seem to matter or it may be for some people it does but the additional element of removing plant foods and of course replacing all those calories with meat seems to be doing something completely above and beyond that which is very exciting it is very exciting and and, and other uh, interviews i've had opportunities to speak with people like dr ken berry and the fat keys and uh, mr peter bruckner and paul mason and uh, Chris Kenobi and a number, but there was one particular gentleman, uh, Professor Barry Marshall, who's the Nobel Prize laureate of uh, discovering the link between Helicobacter pylori. I'm not sure whether oh, you're yes. across his work. And yes, we, what a courageous person. Yeah, it, it's a, I mean, I'll link that one below for people to watch as well. We had an opportunity, Amber, to talk about my poo uh, because when I go full strict zero carb uh, I get zero gas and zero belching and have the most wonderful bowel movements that are less frequent and I was explaining to him that I was so curious um, from someone who came from a horrendously gassy and smelly background even from a baby where my mother used to have to wear a clothes peg to change my nappies um, what was going on and I think even he was a little taken aback at uh, how it worked. And he's a gastroenterologist uh, by trade. Um, so we had some really interesting conversations. And for those that are curious, I did capture it in a glove, in a disposable glove, and it does smell a bit like the ocean. <laughs> Have you noticed any significant changes in your bowel movements, Amber? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, capital. yeah, it was a long time ago when I started, but one of the most noticeable things is gas stops either completely or almost completely and you realize how much of that is to do with the fermentation of plant fiber in your gut it makes perfect sense when you think about it but i think that most people just think of uh, you know gas being a just a everyday part of the human experience and it doesn't have to be <laughs> One of the other changes, certainly in the last couple of years, I was always super sensitive to deodorants and tried all of them, all of the rock crystal ones and all the, the new age ones. And I just got to a point where I stopped wearing them. And again, when I eat clean, according to the people around me, the people that care, I don't smell. Mm -hmm. I mean, How it sounds you? crazy, right? Because... There are so many benefits to a ketogenic diet, and there's so many benefits that people, at least anecdotally, are reporting from a carnivore diet that it it begins to sound like a crazy sales pitch. And I, I wouldn't blame people if they just got overwhelmed and, and started to lose their credulity about it. But, but the number of things that just just small things that I think that people experience that add up when you go on a carnivore diet, including improvements in, like you said, body odors often reported. I've heard that lots of times. Um, skin things like things that you just you just assumed that the that these acne or rough patches or I had rosacea, for example. Rosacea is 
Well, there are different forms of it. The form that I had is one that is just called, it's just one that turns your skin red. So if I would flush, so for example, a trigger might be going from a cold environment to a warm environment very quickly. So if I came inside, went onto a bus or something, I would suddenly flush. But then the redness in my face would persist for days. And I didn't, you know, I didn't originally think that there was a diagnosis for that or that was something, but I eventually realized this is rosacea. People would ask me if I was sunburned all the time. I said, no, I'm not. It's just my face. <laughs> and that's one of the things that went away for me. Um, someone close to me who went on a carnivore diet stopped having Raynaud's symptoms. That's when you're the, well, for him, it was the toes on, on his feet would, would become very, um, sensitive, painful to, to touch them and turn, they would turn purple um, and um, stopping snoring, all kinds of these, these little things that we just take for granted as little annoyances of life. So they add up to this huge qualitative improvement that you would never expect and that maybe you'll never, maybe never see it on a clinical trial because like who's going to study um, I don't know, snoring on a carnivore diet. There are so many priorities ahead of that. It's so interesting, Amber. You and I are a lot more alike than I think um, I even realized. The snoring uh, was something that I struggled with horrendously. And I even got uh, elective surgery in 2009 where they lasered out my uvula, and which makes me cringe thinking about it now, but also drilled out my nostrils. And I was massive amounts of visceral fat. I was 60 pounds heavier than I am now of body fat. I was a cigarette smoker and a drinker who ate bread for three meals a day. And had I known <laughs> then what I know now, I know that I would not have needed that horrendous, horrendous invasive surgery. And the pain, Amber, for anyone who's listening that's curious to know what snoring surgery feels like, it's the pain you might experience if you gave a lightning bolt a blowjob. <laughs> it was the worst thing ever. During the recovery, though, I lost 10 kilos in nine days because I couldn't eat or drink anything. And I look back now, and I was in a deep ketogenic state. And that's why I was dumping all the, all the water, just something that sprung to mind. Yeah. So I didn't, it wasn't me who had the snoring, it was my ex-husband. And he was also considering doing some surgery because he thought, and his doctor thought it was a physical problem. And obviously it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it was physical, but I mean, it wasn't a structural problem is maybe a more accurate way to say it. No, you're right. It, it, sorry, it wasn't the snoring I was comparing it to. The, the rosacea as well, I used to have red, flush oh, red yeah. cheeks. For yeah. a very long time, which seemed to to leave me when I cut gluten out of my diet, incidentally, and uh, like I lived in Thailand when I was a young man for about six months, and the women in the street would come up and pinch my cheeks because they would have to manually blush their cheeks. It was the babies when they were born had red cheeks, so I looked like a young Thai baby as <laughs> a grown man, oh. apparently. But essential reading, and I I've spent years. Uh, the last three or four years immersed in books and literature and podcasts and conversations. What are some really great books that you can recommend to our audience to help them along this, this journey to learn more? 
Well, <laughs> to be honest, well, let's see. I got started on learning about low-carb diets from Protein Power, which was written around 1996 or so. I found it in 1997 from Mike and Mary Dan Eads. And to this day, I still think it's an outstanding book. I think they would write some things differently, and definitely we've learned a lot since then. But what I really liked about that book was the, the open, honest, scientific kind of inquiry that it brought. And I back then, I didn't have access to being able to look up papers on the internet. But this was the first time that I read a book and wanted to look up the papers. And so I actually went into the medical library in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and um, looked up those papers and on microfiche and photocopied some of them out. I probably still <laughs> have some of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then later, I also read uh, Gary Taubes's book, Good Calories, Bad, Bad Calories. That's an enormous book, and it's dense reading. It is not easy, but it is I think it's worth the read, although I guess it's probably been a good 10 years since I've read it. And then another one that I think is really extraordinary is the Art and Science of Low-Carb Living, I think it's called, by uh, Volokh and Finney. Um, absolutely outstanding scientific um, layperson's guide. Like it's, it's just, it's really readable and yet it's packed full of information that can really get you geeking out on the science. Some really wonderful suggestions there, Amber. And for me, this is my own personal opinion. I, I really believe truly that, and having read as much as I've read and, and tried many, many different things, that this is beyond any shadow of any doubt the right way to live for most humans. And I even, I when I say most humans, I probably almost believe all humans. I. I think the anomaly must be so small for people that can't tolerate meat. I know if you get bitten by a certain tick in Africa or something, you get you know allergic to red meat or some some bollocks along those lines, right? But for the most part, if like particularly with those statistics around with what Chris Palmer was talking about, you know you can improve the mental health of sixty six percent of the planet just by changing what you eat and. I had a, a moment earlier this year where I was able to present this information to the head of the Royal Commission into Mental Health in this country, who was a former guest on the podcast. Uh, and it's Alan Fells, it's Professor Alan Fells. And this isn't a slight on Alan at all, but I presented this in a, in a there was a three minute video that uh, Chris had given me to present to people that wanted to see this. And I played it to a member and his daughter has, has suffered from bipolar and schizophrenia ever since she was a young woman, 11 years of age, and she's still struggling. You know, it's probably worse than it's ever been. And I presented this to him, and I said, what do you think of this, Professor Allen? And he just looked at me, and he smiled. He said, Lab, and I, I get three to four of these silver bullet solutions a week. And, you know, a lot of them are around uh, psychedelics and psilocybin and that type of thing, and... And and I walked out of there really disheartened, Amber, because I because I, I even said to him before I left, I said, Alan, do you ever get that feeling that you write about something and then you find out later that you were? 
And he thought about it for a minute. He said, yeah, a couple of things. And I just said to him, that's how I feel about this. I'm right. And I know it sounds like a really grandiose, arrogant thing to, to maybe to, to say to some people that maybe don't know me or know what I've been doing for the last couple of years. But I walked out of there and rather than sort of being disheartened about it, I was like, you know, I just had an opportunity to present this information to the head of a mental health royal commission. And I don't know what impact that's going to have on a 79-year-old man, but it might. And, you know, for him, what I hope that his daughter would would take on this, he would grab it with both hands and she'd be healed and, you know, and I'd change the world. Um, and maybe I was a bit uh, arrogant in my thinking for that, but it was a really amazing moment. And what it made me realise, Amber, was that we have got such a long way to go in educating people about the power of nutrition and just good health. Well, you know, a lot of that really resonates. I think we obviously have an obesity epidemic, and that's something that's very visible and you can't deny it. But I think what's less visible and less appreciated because it's less visible is an epidemic of mood disorders and and mental health problems. And so to see something that has that kind of effect is, is extraordinary for one thing and really should be looked into. I can understand, you know, that when, whenever there is something that's a widespread problem, there are going to be lots of people trying to sell you a solution and it does become tiresome. But one of the beautiful things about a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet is there's not, there aren't people who, who, you know, you going on a carnivore diet doesn't have to be a, a way of supporting a product, for example, or a, a pharmacological solution. And it seems so species appropriate. If you look at the, if you just look at the biology of a human being and compare it, for example, to our closest primate relatives and look at, for example, our gut morphology that, that just does not have the capacity to process fi- the fiber in plants the way that they do. Or if you look at the, the way that, um, the way that we have fat on our bodies is, is extraordinary, even for a primate. We have, we're probably three times, I mean, I'm not just talking about like me, I'm talking about really lean bodybuilder type people. Even they have like three times as much fat as, you, as a, a chimpanzee might have. And the reason for that is almost certainly in order to support our also unexpectedly three times as large brain. And the way that it can do that, if you're using fat for fuel, if you think about how long we've had agriculture and how long we've been humans, the agriculture, grain agriculture part is very, very small. And we had to support these brains. And uh, it's, it's, it becomes almost utterly obvious when you look at it in retrospect, how important our, the, the fat supply was and the ability to supply the brain with fuel in the form of ketones because fat doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier very well. Um, so that's why glucose is a great f- fuel for the brain and we do use that, our liver can make that. But I like to think of 
of ketones as a transport form of fat that's specifically to get through the blood-brain barrier and be used. And so when you think about um, when you think about a ketogenic diet from our modern perspective, it seems totally crazy. Like it seems like a, a hack where you're cutting out the foundation of the diet to get this weird physiology that's, that's like fasting and you're trying to perpetuate fasting. And isn't it kind of like malnutrition because it's a comparison to starvation. But if you just rewind just a few thousand years where if you even look at certain societies that were around and, and thriving not that long ago, there are plenty of people who are living without carbohydrates being the basis of their diet. And if you had that as a comparison, ketosis wouldn't be the difference between fasting and eating. <laughs> so there, there are all these reasons when you look at the human body, biologically, uh, paleoanthropologically, or even just very strange aspects of our physiology, it becomes very obvious that fat and ketone bodies are a beautiful way of supporting the brains that we have that make us unique. It's such a such a fascinating topic and there was uh, one particular guest who came on Ruben Meerman I'm not sure whether you know that name is a scientist based out of Queensland in Australia and he was recognized for his work he did around uh, where fat goes and it was concluded that it comes out through our breath about 80 percent I think uh, as in the expended carbohydrate or whatever that's that's left over and during my transition to carnivore, Amber, I discovered these periods of euphoria where I had this like sort of non-sexual orgasmic feeling in my gut. And and I was trying to find someone that could explain what was going on. And he seemed to think that it had a lot to do with the, uh, the amino acids of the meat, but also those ketone bodies contain alpha-hydroxybutyrate and then they generate their own smaller amounts of gamma hydroxybutyrate, which for those who have taken drugs before will know that that's the same name for fantasy or the date rape drug fantasy, GHB. And, and it, pro it produces this mild euphoria. I was curious to know, have you encountered any of these type of experiences yourself? I wouldn't say, I'm not sure that I've had experiences exactly like that, but I have definitely had huge bursts of energy. So for example, I have never liked running. Uh, I've done it from time to time, um, either because I thought it might be good for me or because somebody else thought that when I was younger. Um, but after I first went on a carnivore diet, I can remember very clearly the first time this happened, I, was, I had walked my three or four-year-old to school, to preschool, and then I was walking back and I just started running. I just was so filled with energy and it wouldn't be uncommon for me afterwards, even now to just skip spontaneously. I mean, it looks a little silly, but that's, it's just how I feel sometimes. <laughs> and, and I really do think it, it is an expression of having so much spare energy. Uh, well, there could be also, I suppose, there could also be biochemical euphoria receptor type things going on as well. But even just from an energy perspective, I have often felt like the, the energy that's released is, 
is just it's just a blessing. It feels good to be alive. It feels good to move. And so it kind of breaks down and turns on its head this whole thing about doing exercise for health. And you realize that it's the people who have the energy that feel like they want to move that are healthy, but it's not necessarily, you can't necessarily get that by forcing yourself to move when you're dragging yourself along. It's spot on. And and people uh, would attribute my meteoric rise in the running game. And <laughs> I went from running very short distances of five kilometers was the most I'd ever run as of May, 2018. And within the period of two weeks, I'm not joking, I ran my first marathon uh, 42.2 Ks, and I ran it under four hours, which is uh, a pretty good number for, for someone who hadn't done much training, to be followed up with a 50-kilometer and 100-kilometer ultra marathon within the space of five months. And people say to me, yeah, but you, you know, your energy is coming from the running. And I, and the opposite, the, the running came from the energy that I had. I could not sit still, and it wasn't an uncomfortable, jittery feeling. It was a propulsion to get out and move my body. And I've become a lot more in tune with my evolutionary roots, I think, as a result. And I listen to my body more and go out in the sun more. I don't wear a shirt when I run, you know, rain, hail or snow, so I can get my vitamin D. I don't wear sunscreen unless I'm absolutely going to be stuck in the middle of the midday sun. Um, These kind of things have sort of burst forth. And it sounds like you're going through, you know, similar, similar type events. Yes, I've definitely experienced that. And that's very impressive, by the way. Wow, I've never done anything like that. <laughs> well, the, the night's young. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it would not shock me if something came out of, you know, it, it, I suppose it depends on how much healing the body needed, Amber. And I'm, and I'm really, my mind's sort of thinking whether a lifetime or a youth of, of, being on a plant-based, predominantly plant-based diet, maybe depleted whatever stored nutrition and it's taking, maybe takes as long to rebuild that as the time that you were on that, just as an idea. And I know you had eggs and dairy in there at times as well. So, you know, all is not lost. Um, There's one lady uh, who has been a guest on the podcast as well, who I'd love to introduce you to, uh, Lisa Emerson. Um, who I don't know if you know that name. She's just sort of burst onto the scene. She's an iron deficiency expert who has gone through. Uh, she had a um, depressive, suicidal, depressive um, anxiety and a bunch of. She had like sixty five symptoms, all but one. She's put into full remission um, by replenishing her iron. She she was low carb keto, and she even tried carnivore. Carnivore didn't work. Uh, for what she was going through, but she was chronically iron deficient. So um, that seems to underpin a lot of these chronic issues as well. So I'm not sure what sort of work you've done in that space or what you've read about that links yeah, much. Yeah, I, I don't know necessarily that much about iron deficiency, although I know that there can be different nutrients that can that all lead to that pathway. For example, if you have B12, or, or folate deficiencies, they can become kinds of anemia. But, you know, the other thing is about carnivore diet not being successful. I think that in some cases, the carnivore diet is all you need and your body will reset. And I really like the emphasis you put on that kind of repair, because I think a lot of people are 
and understandably impatient when they start a diet. They want to see weight loss right away. And maybe that's not just not the priority. I mean, not that your body is, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but if you've got a lot of repair work to do, your insulin levels are going to stay elevated until, because that's part of the repair process. Um, but, but, but in, in other cases, I think that there can be, either a built up of a depletion, like an ongoing depletion that just eating well starting today isn't necessarily going to make up the deficit that's built up over time. Or relatedly, you might have, if you have some kind of ongoing repair issue, like suppose you have um, some heavy metal toxicity, for example, that your body is, is detoxifying uh, I hate to use that word because it sounds so woo, but I mean, it's a real thing to get it's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. And, and so if you, for whatever reason, your, your body just needs more right now than maybe even the best diet in the world isn't going to provide enough to get you over that. And so sometimes taking a supplement in the form of, of just pure vitamins of one form or another can really make a big difference to get you back to where you need to be. Yeah, well, I think in Lisa's case, and she's been very public about this, I'm not sharing anything that hasn't been shared, but uh, it had to do with 20% of the population has an issue with riboflavin absorption, and it doesn't come up in a normal normal iron blood panel, so you need it. She's she's she she's able to coach people because she understands what the reference ranges need to be. Uh, and in, in, in extreme cases, um, iron fusions uh, are required for people that are chronically depleted. But she's put it all in a remission. The only one thing she's got is a blurry eye from some possible, some um, permanent damage from the issues that she had that hasn't necessarily healed itself. But from my own experience, uh, in I, I, I know I'm way healthier than I've been backed up by blood work and DEXA scans and See, you know, um, what do you call them? CAC scores. I got a zero last year. I know I'm still only 40, but still it was nice to hear that after three years of eating <laughs> just red meat. But I've also put on, uh, within 18 months ago in carnivore, I put on half a kilo of skeletal bone density, which I've spoken about, which I find so fascinating because the medication that I was on for my GERD and my heartburn for 17 years inhibits B12, iron, and guess what? Calcium. So... I think my body is is regenerating itself. There's even a there was a small filling that's been verified through X-ray that's repaired itself in my teeth, which I find uh, not so surprising anymore. But like, I'm looking forward to what else I can re- repair. <laughs> yeah, we have all these assumptions about things that just that can't be repaired. Um, when I was growing up, I mean, the common knowledge was that you couldn't grow new brain cells when you're or, you know new neurons as an adult, and we. We absolutely know that that's not true anymore, and I hope that <laughs> I hope that there are a lot of these assumptions that that are going to get turned over when you give your body the correct nutrition or the materials that it needs to heal. And when you take away whatever is getting in the way of healing, it it, it can be really powerful. It's it's so amazing. I got two questions for you, Amber. Uh, first question: Do you? Do you have a family history of bipolar, depression, any of these other conditions? Uh, I think there is depression in my family. I don't think anyone else that I know of 
has been diagnosed with bipolar. Um, there's definitely diabetes and heart disease. <laughs> okay. So, and my second question is, you're, you're a mum? Yes, I am. You're a mum. How many, how many children do you have now? Three. You got three. What do you feed the kids? <laughs> well, I, my children are 20, 16, and 11, so I have less and less control, <laughs> uh, if you can even call it that anymore, <laughs> over what over what they eat. I mean, my so my teenager and, and adult child basically eat what they want, and they both are, I would say, ketogenic most of the time, but not all of the time, and, you know, they they know what they like and they know what they're willing to make trade-offs for. And of course they eat a lot of meat. I shouldn't say, of course, I mean, wouldn't it just be um, my fate to have a child say, no mom, I'm going to be vegetarian. <laughs> if that's what, if that's what they decide, but I, you know, I try to just give them information and let them decide what they're going to do with that. And I, I feel confident that, that they have the tools to figure things out later should they run into any problems. So even if, even if, you know, a couple of years ago it was one of my oldest child was not eating a, a ketogenic diet and was eating kind of a crappy diet. <laughs> and I knew, you know, that, that, you know, when that became important, if, and when that became important, they would know what to do. Yeah, I think it's a case of just leading by example where we can and, and trying to change anyone as a frivolous uh, exercise uh, in futility, <laughs> an exercise of futility. Um, the, the reason I ask is I know there'll be a lot of mums and dads that will be listening to this thinking about the impact that, that them changing their diet will have on the family. And, you know, one of the things that you spoke about, your mum, for ethical reasons, was plant-based or vegetarian and that's something that's still very close to your heart as well yeah well certainly i care about <laughs> the animals that i eat and i want them to have the best life that they can i don't always buy from local farms and i know that some situations are much better than others uh there's a bit of a put your own mask on first kind of idea for me because I'm not going to be any use to the world, let alone to, you know, animal husbandry. If I'm languishing in my bed, thinking about suicide. So, so number one for me is to get my own health in order. And when I started a carnivore diet, I did not have much financial means. And if you had told me that I had to eat only the best raised organic grass fed whatever whatever i would never have been able to do it and i didn't need to so i think that's important to know this is not a diet that is unattainable you can eat ground beef and eggs um and and it's it can be actually cheaper in some ways because vegetables if you think about them from a calorie basis they're actually really really expensive and they they're very perishable i know that there's a lot of food waste when it comes to vegetables we have this drawer i don't know if it's called the same in australia but we call it the crisper yeah um, i think george carlin said it should be called the rotter where <laughs> 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 vegetables go to rot um, <laughs> but but yes i do absolutely care about animals and my ideally i think that 
you know, there's a there's an opportunity because animals that are in the wild often, I mean, always have a brutal experience at the end of their lives. They don't. They certainly don't live out their their whole lifespan, and they succumb to sickness, and they get eaten by predators, and they get eaten alive. And so domestication is certainly a step up from that. But we can do our best to not only provide shelter from those predators, but keep our animals healthy and give them everything that they need and then uh, slaughter them in the most humane way possible. And I think that that's, I don't, when you think about the total, <laughs> the total utility in philosophical terms uh, of the, the ethical situation, you want human beings to be as healthy as possible. And so, you know, if, eating meat is what it takes to raise the the happiness and mental health level of the human population then that's an extraordinarily ethical act it's a really great point amber and and there's two things for my own choices from the the meat and the animal product that i like to eat i i given i don't drink or gamble anymore or do drugs i use that money to invest in my health and and I vote with my feet and I make sure that I for the most part where possible I find you know the best butchers that, that really look after their animals because a well-raised animal is not only more nutrient uh, intense or nutrient dense rather but it tastes better and that whole point regarding sharing this knowledge the reason I do this and I, and I love sharing this information is because I want to meet more people like me and like you because people that are healthy and happy are really good fun to be around. And this is this seems to be a direct correlation, Amber, something just as purely anecdotal. But I look back at all the relationships, you know, friendships or colleagues or whatever it might be, and for a long period I was uh, – I sought validation, so I would do things to please people for a long time. So I had quite a lot of people that liked me, I think, maybe not necessarily for the right reason. So I was rather likable, but the people that I didn't get on well with, in retrospect, the majority of them were vegetarian or vegan, especially. And I just found that so interesting. And I don't want to polarise, or maybe I do subconsciously, <laughs> but people that are vegan or vegetarian because I know everyone's doing the best they can with the tools available. But it makes sense why you're such a grumpy bastard if you are nutrient deficient in the key nutrition that's going to allow your stomach to produce a hormone and chemicals that make you feel good. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I have to say, I mean, with full sincerity that some of the loveliest people I know are vegetarian, and I think that that's because they believe that that's the best thing to do and it takes um, – a great deal of caring for them to do that. But on the other hand, um, I don't know for sure about all of them, but I know that many of them have struggled, mental health struggles, and I would love to see them be happier for sure. And then, you know, I don't want to base too much on internet interactions, but some of the, <laughs> some of the, most egregiously unkind interactions that I've had have been with vegetarians. Now, of course, they're angry with me and I can understand that, but, but really sometimes just, just off the rails, like 
I don't tra- treat vegetarians that way, even though I think that they're wrong and that they might be, you know, ultimately harming the health of other people by spreading that information. But but you've got to, you do need to have a certain emotional stability and ability to care about yourself in order to to give to the people around you. Yeah, it's it's a really great point. And I know what I say often on this podcast is deemed probably very controversial, but guess what? It's my podcast and I can say whatever the heck I like on there. And that's why I don't work for anyone. Um, and it's not that I'm deliberately going out there to antagonize anyone at all. I, I really do believe in in uh, seeing the best in people and coming from a love and abundance mindset. I, you know, I'm a deeply flawed human being like we all are, Amber, and uh, doing the best I can with the tools I have available, but I've got a, I've got some special weapons in my arsenal now in the form of steak and eggs and oysters and liver and thymus, you know. And, and when I have those things, uh, I feel like Iron Man. And when I don't, I don't. So I eat it all the time. And for that, for to discover that. I'm so incredibly blessed and I just want to share that so that people can make their own informed decision. I just want the truth. That's all I want. That's all I want. Cheers to that. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Twitter interactions with uh, unhinged vegans, where can people find you on social media, Em? <laughs> it is Twitter where I spend the majority of my social media time and that's at Keto Carnivore, K-E-T-O Carnivore. We'll have it down below, and you've you've got a a small book that you've written and, and uh, created like an audible type thing that's available on on the website. It's a book in progress, so I've been releasing a chapter at a time as I finish them, and only the first one has the audio version. But a lot of people really liked that, so I, I would like to put up the audio for more of those. And yeah, for now, it's available freely online. My plan is to finish it all like that so people can have it because I really don't want to bar any access. But then when it's finished, I'll have it professionally edited and then I can sell print copies. And that's available on your website, which is what? My website is mostlyfat.com. There's a hyphen, so mostly-fat.com. Mostly-fat.com. And... Having listened to it, Amber, you've got a really lovely audible voice or a Kindle voice, whatever you want to call it. So uh, I look forward to hearing the thing in its entirety. I I understand that it's getting towards nighttime where you are. I don't want to keep you up. I love talking about this. I love meeting people like you, Amber, but I'm very respectful of your time and realize that you probably have a steak to go and cook. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience? Um, no, I don't have any concluding thoughts necessarily <laughs> because uh, I don't know where the conclusions are, but uh, I would definitely encourage people to to tr- be, be willing to try things that you aren't sure of because you'll never know. Uh, I mean, if you can have anything remotely like the experience that happened to me just by trying something new I mean it really changed my whole life and a carnivore diet in particular seems to be 
the risk ratio, the risk um, benefit ratio seems to be extraordinarily uh, low. <laughs> so it's very low risk to try a carnivore diet for a month, say. And, you know, I've even, I published a paper last year about the a carnivore diet and how it's possible to get all the, your essential nutrients. And that's more of even a long-term view, but certainly for a month, it's not going to hurt you. And the potential upside, I mean, if you, if, if Chris Palmer's seeing results that are, a, you know, a third or two thirds of people are getting some kind of benefit and the carnivore diet may be even more benefit beyond just a ketogenic diet, then, then really what have you got to lose? I could not agree more. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute delight. Amber O'Hearn. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training well i will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g H-E-R-O-E-S dot com.